we come to uh, the reading of your of God's word. Uh, we've got two short passages to read. First one is in Acts chapter two. We're commencing at verse forty. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And if we turn over a page or so, come to chapter 5 and the first 11 verses. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Lord God, these are your words. This is your book. Lord, we just pray for Nick as he comes now and explains what some of these things mean to us today. 
that we may grow in your grace. Anoint him with your spirit, we pray. Amen. I'm very excited about being in the book of Acts. We're coming to Acts, and really all we're doing in this series is we're looking at every time it talks about prayer, and we're heading to that passage and seeing what we can learn, um, you know, in particular about prayer. And so the first one was that waiting prayer they did in Acts um, 14. Today is that um, devoted prayer. Um, that happens at the end of Acts 2. But let's start at the beginning. I, I, think, I think summaries are helpful in life. If you want um, uh, sermon notes, they're round and about the place. So I tend to think we live by little pithy sayings a lot of the time um, in most of life rather than deep knowledge. That's my thesis anyway, and I ask you to, you can test it out. <laughs> Having said this is my theory, then I could only think of a couple of examples. So, you know, in a, in a car, you know, you have this mirror signal manoeuvre. You know, it's a little summary, um, and it helps you just with that aspect of, of your driving. Um, I before E except after C, which I'm sure you're all taught at schools. Uh, but the little coda to that is except when it doesn't, um, because, of course, there are, there are lots of exceptions. So I guess they probably don't teach that anymore. Do they not teach that anymore? I don't know. But summaries, are, I think, are useful in the Christian life. Acts, we'll talk about Acts prayer, A-C-T-S. Um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication as the four things that might go into a prayer. Might go into a personal prayer, might go into a prayer, let's say, when you were leading a service. And it's quite helpful once you've worked out what supplication means, which means just asking for stuff. <laughs> okay. Or we say sometimes we pray to the Father in the name of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a bit like mirror signal maneuver, isn't it? We just we remember those things and it just gets us it gets us right. Though of course you could just pray the Lord's Prayer, which is a little summary prayer in itself. So I think it should pique your interest, and it certainly piqued mine, that Luke has these little summaries scattered um, across his books. Um, in Luke, yes, but um, in Acts 2. So we're going today, bizarre as it may seem, um, to look at Luke's summaries. Um, that's the next slide. And there are two kinds of summaries. Okay, stay with me. This is exciting, I, I promise you. Um, there are two kinds of summaries in the book of Acts. Um, there are summary statements that tend to be just one word, um, and summary passages. Um, which tend to be uh, a little bit longer. And, and they serve different functions. So the summary statements are, are spread um, right across the gospel. And they comment on the growth or the spread of the church. And, and so they act like bits of glue, um, you, you might argue. So um, come on in, if you want to come on in. And <coughs> So imagine you're writing a, a, a big essay or, or a report and you haven't got access to, you know, the latest AI chatbot, um, which will more or less write it for you um, nice and smooth. But you're doing it in the slightly old school kind of way, which is you go to the Internet um, and, you, and you cut and you paste. 
Um, and so you've got this document, and it's all you've got. You've cut and pasted, and you've got these slabs of stuff. But you have to at least try to kind of make it flow. And, and so what do you do? Well, the minimal thing is you write some kind of little linking sentence that, that links, um, you know, cut and paste A to cut and paste B. And you write a little sentence in between to link it. That's what Luke has done. Now, if you were writing an essay for your A-levels or for college or university, that would be considered bad practice. You're expected to read your sources, understand them, and, and then rewrite them. If it was a business report, you might get away with it. Um, but even there, you might be expected to put those facts in your own voice. But if it's a history of the church, this is exactly what we want. We want Luke to just bung down his sources on paper. We don't need him to rewrite them. We want to hear. Though we don't know where he got his sources from, who he, who he, who he went to, Mary, Peter, Paul... But we want it put down with the minimum of editing, and that's what Luke is like. He's a very conservative editor. He just takes his sources and puts them down on paper. But he links these reports with these little summary statements just to make a subtle point. And the point is this. The church is growing and spreading. In other words, what Jesus said when he said the... the uh, the disciples would be his witnesses um, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It is happening. Don't worry, we'll look at them in more detail in a minute, and I'll explain. The summary passages <coughs> are different. They're different, and they only come in the first. They only come in the first half or the first third of Acts, and they describe a different thing. They describe what the church looks like on the inside. What does the actual church practice look like? But together, they provide a really interesting way into the, the book of Luke. So the summary statements are showing the church growing and <clears throat> spreading outwards, and the passages show the church growing deep. What does it look like on the inside? And it is the Holy Spirit that is driving both these processes. They're going out and they're going deep. So let's have a look. Uh, Ian, the, you have to keep up with me. Let's have a look at these summary statements. Here's the first two. In Acts 2, those who accepted his message, this is after Peter was preaching, yeah, were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So that kind of summary statement, it takes us from that really early stuff, Pentecost, and it gets us into the next phase where the apostles do some preaching and there's some persecution. The next transition is, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the Lord. And that happens just after they've appointed the deacons um, in the church. So, again, it kind of finishes off the one section, and it brings us into the, in, into the next section, um, where there, we find out more about Peter and Philip and the very early part of the story of Paul. Okay, there's first in next two, Acts 9. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and were strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So Acts 9, that's the kind of um, 
it's kind of transitioning from the beginning of Paul's ministry into a section that's all about Peter. And it ends with Herod's death. And then you get this next summary. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, um, taking with them John, also called Mark. So that kind of transitions out into the next phase, which is the beginning of the missionary journeys. Um, and then Acts 16. Um, so I've lost track where this is. Uh, this is second missionary journey, I think. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew um, daily in numbers. Um, and at that point, it, it's a transition point because the, the missionaries finally leave, um, leave Asia and go into Europe. I think that's right. And then in Acts 19... In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And after all this had happened, (coughs) Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I'd been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. It's another transition time where Paul kind of sets his um, face towards Rome. (coughs) But did you see the pattern? I don't know whether you saw the pattern. The first one, in each of those sentences, says the church grew in number. And the second one, in each of those pairs, said the word of God spread. That can't be a mistake. That's, that's got to be deliberate. So Luke, he's, he's trying to give you the minimum of invention. He's trying to give you the maximum of report, the minimum of invention. And so what he says, though, is... Uh, in these three parallels. The church grew in numbers, the word of God spread. There's there's a kind of master's degree in this for somebody. Okay, not me, but, you know, uh, for somebody, there's there's kind of some study to be done on on these passages. So what Luke is saying is, is, is on the one hand, Acts 1, 8 is coming to pass. When the disciples were promised, they received power and the Holy Spirit came on them and they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The, the church is growing and the gospel is spreading. But the second point, and it's, it's critical for us, which is why I've given you so much setup to the punchline, which is that church growth and spread of the word are, the, are two faces of the same phenomenon. The church spreads and increases in numbers as the word is spread. The word of God. In other words, the gospel and the disciples' personal witness to Christ. There's nothing new there. But this is the truth. And I think you just need to see it in the book of Acts. This book about how does the church grow under the power of the Holy Spirit? It grows as the word is spread. If the word is not spread, the church does not grow. It's, it's basic. But we prayed that we want to be a church that doubles in size. Not because there's anything magic about being twice as big, but because we want to focus on growth. And if we're praying that, what has to happen then for the church to grow? The word has to spread. 
So how are we going to pray? Coming to Acts, looking for how to pray. We're going to pray for opportunities to be a witness. And here's one of our little summaries. It said over the, over the years we pray for opportunities, pray for eyes to see them, courage to take them, and wisdom to know what to say. Say that again. Praying for opportunities to talk about our faith. Eyes to see them, courage to take them, wisdom to know what to say. In other words, we are throwing the weight of all those things that we feel fearful about, and we're throwing them on the Lord, and we're saying to the Lord, you provide the opportunities, please. You give me the eyes to see them. You give me the courage to take them, and you tell me to know what to say. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. So actually we're praying for, we're praying for God-given opportunities and we're praying for the Holy Spirit to give us power to, to make the most of them. We hate bringing the subject up. So we pray for God to give us opportunities. Um, we kind of close our eyes to the opportunities even when they do come up. So we pray for God to open our eyes. Um, we're, we're really um, fearful if we've seen an opportunity and we're really fearful to say something when we, well then we pray for courage. We're worried that we won't know what to say, so we're praying ahead of time that God will tell us what to say. So the Holy Spirit has come upon these disciples. In Acts 6, they choose some of the guys who are filled with the Holy Spirit. So filling with the Holy Spirit should be the norm, okay? You should be filled with the Holy Spirit um, at all times. But even when they're filled with the Spirit, there are occasions where they need to be filled with the Spirit to have courage and power to, to speak out. And that should encourage you. That should encourage us. Even some of these guys who are described as being filled with the Spirit, they were full of the Spirit of God, needed, as it were, the Holy Spirit to work extra to give them courage and the ability to, to speak out. So those are the summary statements. So uh, in a briefer way, um, there are summary passages, little kind of, um, these are a little bit longer, a few sentences um, come up in Acts um, 2, 4, I can't remember, 5 somewhere I think, or 6 and 8, and they're different. They describe what church life is like, and in case you haven't realised what we're getting at this morning, is that in this little passage that we've read, we have both a summary statement and a summary passage. We have a statement that those who accepted his message and were baptised, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then we have a summary passage. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and those verses that follow. The Holy Spirit has sent them out powerfully uh, to speak. The Holy Spirit has called them together um, in a powerful devotion. Church grows out by word being spread. Church grows deep um, by devotion. What do they do? Well, they uh, devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're a learning church. Can you imagine that? There were 3,000 newbies, all needing to be taught, um, all needing a nurture group. Um, they're a loving church says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. It's a word koinonia, and it doesn't really mean fellowship. It means a joint activity. 
So the joint activity that they're doing uh, in this first, in verse 42, is that they're breaking bread together um, and they are praying together. Probably breaking bread in, the, um, in a double meaning because communion was in the context of a meal most often anyway. They were breaking bread together. Um, they were praying together. And fellowship, I guess, in, in the English term is really the, the, the sense of togetherness that comes out of joint activity. They were also giving. We see that they were making sure no one had material needs, so there were people selling stuff. It's not communism. They weren't throwing everything together in a big pot and living out of that pot. They were living their lives where they were, but if people were in need, somebody who had more was selling stuff uh, and making sure there weren't people um, in need. And the result was that the Lord added to their number daily. I'm not going to go into this in detail because we've done this before. But what are we going to pray then? We've prayed that we want to grow. Well, let's be really honest. Some of us have. Okay. And I suspect you can come and tell me afterwards if I'm wrong. Some of us haven't. Why the reluctance? Because you suspect that the Lord will ask you to be part of the answer. Well, that's a kind of... Um, that's an, an, an inbuilt challenge to the nature of prayer. You're right. If you pray that, the Lord might ask you to be part of the answer. Spread the word. Go and be my witnesses. But also go deep with your brother's and sisters. Be devoted. Devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What does it look like to be devoted to something? In a week and a bit's time, you can look at this in your home groups. The home groups are running a, a kind of week behind in their studies. <coughs> Where would you use that word? You might say, oh, they're devoted parents. Or well, you might say they're devoted grandparents. Um, grandparents have that ah, you know, and they spoil them, um, and they can give them back at the end of the day. Um, they're devoted to their grandkids. And that's usually a good thing. Or you might say, well, you know, he's devoted to that motorbike or whatever it is, and maybe we don't say that in quite such a positive way. <coughs> but, but to be devoted to something is to do it with persistence. It's to remain with something. It means to be loyal to someone. <clears throat> it means to occupy oneself diligently with something. Or to pay persistent attention to. So we've actually met it already in Acts 1. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Same word, actually. Slightly different, mean, slightly different meaning in the context. They joined together devotedly in prayer. And now they're devoted, they're constant in Bible reading and uh, Bible learning and fellowship, breaking bread and prayer. And this is church membership. <clears throat> to be devoted to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's not a chore. <clears throat> okay. Does it look like a chore? Devoted to teaching, to breaking of bread, 
communion services, prayer, prayer meetings, looking after physical needs of one another. And I have to say Rob's example of that with, with, with Gorath is, is a prime example of that. Meeting together, praising God. You see, we're not told this explicitly, but I think we can assume it, that they've had a powerful experience of the love of God through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, um, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given us. If we have the Holy Spirit, I think we've got to assume that they've had a powerful experience of the love of God when the Holy Spirit came upon them. So their devotion is a response of love to being loved. Devotion is a response of gratitude for grace received. It's not a chore, it's their, it's their natural response. And we do know that the first named fruit of the Holy Spirit is love in Galatians 5. So devotion is practical effort out of personal affection. So the first characteristic of this spirit-filled church after they've gone out and spoken is devotion. Devotion to a, a basic set of corporate activities. Coming under teaching, breaking of bread, prayer. Meeting together, large and small gatherings, praising the Lord. That's what it, like, that's what it means to be spirit-filled. I said it would look different as we went along. That's what the Spirit is driving you to do. And I love the fact that <clears throat> so many people come into this church and say they felt loved. And that's right, and they should. But devotion is not then intermittent. Devotion is not patchy. But nor is it drudgery. And we need, I think, to step away from looking at ourselves and going away and thinking, must try harder. And to look a little bit deeper. So we said, I think, last week about if you're not praying, it's a sign that you don't want the Lord. You don't want the Lord um, at work in your life. And the same goes for Bible reading. We said, if you're not, if you're not reading the Bible, you don't actually want the Lord to, to speak to you. And the same goes for being um, devoted to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you, don't, if you don't want to be close to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't want the Lord. Okay. Whoever claims to, be, to love God, um, John says, yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Cannot, note. you don't want devotion to the family of God, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't want the Lord. And I'm not saying that to condemn, I'm saying that to diagnose. Just saying that so that you start to think, what is really going on in my heart? And we like to think, um, <clears throat> I remember one writer said, we like to think, uh, as Christians, we're, we're kind of fighting fighting um, for the Lord, and we think that those who are non-Christians are fighting against the Lord. 
And he said, it's not true. He said, as Christians, we're still fighting the Lord. We just intend to lose. And I think that's, that's about right. Um, tempted to think that we're fighting wholeheartedly for the Lord. And in fact, even as Christians, half the time we're fighting for him and half the time we're fighting against him. And Christian growth is to stop fighting against him. It's to work out how, where and why you're fighting against him and start to, start to change it. So I read Psalm 30, 31, which we, we, uh, I read a couple of verses from earlier on. It's a lovely psalm. David is crying out for rescue. Um, but I read this from Don Carson about this psalm. He says, yet the sad reality is that we who bear God's image oscillate between fearing abandoned by God and wanting to escape from his presence. The same David who wrote this psalm, he's desperate for God's presence, who wrote this psalm was not particularly eager to delight in the presence of God when he was lusting after Bathsheba and plotting to murder her husband. Too often, we would like God to look the other way when we hanker to thumb our noses at him and insist on following our own paths. And we would like God to demonstrate his presence and glory to us and certainly get us out of trouble when we find ourselves in desperate straits. I think that's right. I think Don Carson has hit that on the head. This is normal, not in the sense that it's right, but it's normal in the sense that it is commonplace. We oscillate. Oscillate between, Lord, don't abandon me. Lord, come and save me. Lord, come and, and get involved with this. And between, Lord, don't look now. Lord, don't look at this. Certainly don't look down here. And actually, sometimes we're doing both at the same time. We're saying, Lord, come and help me. You know, come and help me with, come and help me with this. Lord, don't look at this. Whatever this might be. And Christian growth is working out where you're resisting the Lord. And turning it around. So devotion, I want to suggest, is a lack of oscillation, to use Carson's word. It's learning to want God consistently and working out why and when we push him away. So Luke's summary statements. Statements about church going out. Passages about church going deep. But there's an interesting little episode, isn't it? Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5. In the midst of this Holy Spirit-driven devotion where people are, are selling stuff so that no one's in need. <laughs> some, people, some people are not, shall we say. So the couple called Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of property. And we read in verse 2, Acts 5 verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. See, once sold, he could do what he wanted with the proceeds. He didn't have to bring it all. He wasn't obliged to bring it all to the apostles. He could use some of it. He could keep some of it. He'd give some of it over here, bring the rest to the apostles. But he's decided with his wife, we discover later, to bring this to the apostles and said, this was all we got. Now, Peter has some God-given knowledge that something is up. Um, and he challenges Ananias. 
And he says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came, wrapped him up, and carried him off and buried him. Sapphira comes in. She hasn't heard any of this. The same thing happens. Great fear seized the whole church. And Don Carson, again, I, I quote him. I've been reading him in my own devotions. He says this, throughout the Bible... The closer the people are to times and situations of revelation or revival, the more immediate the divine sanction against those who defy him. That's a really helpful statement. I thought thought this was a bright kind of um, thought that I'd had on my own. Um, That in the Bible, there were certain periods of time where God seems to be really harsh on people seems to show really um, harsh judgment. Um, and, they, and it comes at times of either revival or where God's, the church or the people of God are moving into a new phase. And, kind of, and, then, I, and then I read this, and I kind of thought, oh, that's really nice. Don Carson agrees with me um, on this. And then I re- realized that, of course, I've, I've read this years ago, and I probably got it from him in the first place. So you have to be humble in the end. But throughout the Bible, the closer the people are to times and situations of revelation or revival, the more immediate the divine sanction against those who defy him. When the people of Israel go into the promised land for the first time, after their first battle, one of the guys keeps some of the plunder. Just one person, the next time out they go and they're defeated. Armies of Israel are defeated and he's put to death for it. When the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to Jerusalem from the Philistines, this guy called Utzah puts out his hand to steady it and dies. Seems a bit extreme, Lord. They're told all along not to, not to touch it. Seems a bit extreme. When um, the priesthood is established, Nadab and Abihu offer unauthorized fire. They, they, we never really work out, told out what that is, but they, they, they bring incense to the Lord in a way that he wasn't asked to. And they die. Now Ananias and Sapphira, in this new era of the Holy Spirit, have lied. How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? In colder, more rebellious times, this is Carson, God seems to let the people go to extraordinary lengths of evil before reining them in. Yet the former periods bring greater blessing, more of the presence of God, more disciplined zeal amongst the people. So here's the kicker. 
which kind of time do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a, a time of where of general coldness towards the Lord when it seems amazing that he's more long-suffering or do you want to live in a time of revival but the Lord is more in your face and holding you to account? That's the decision, isn't it? For us individually, us as a church, do we want to live in cold times because and carry on not really being honest with the Lord about our lives, or do we want to live in times of revival and invite the Lord to say to us whatever he needs to say about our lives? If we want there to be a time of our blessing and revival, then the fear of the Lord needs to be renewed. We should want it. We should pray for it. We should allow for fear to creep into our devotions and indeed into our church services and into our worship. And so at a personal level, I suggest we need to realize that lying to the Holy Spirit is deathly. It's deathly. It's possible, I think it's possible, it's really easy to live in a kind of Christian fantasy world. I was really shocked in the last kind of fortnight to discover what a fantasist I am in areas of life. You'll have to ask me about that privately. I still might not tell you. But it's possible to live in a kind of Christian fantasy world where we pretend that we're holy, we're nice really, we're God-seeking, and life is all right. Our prayers are answered, and there are no sins that rule over us. And that's the face you probably bring when you come into church. I'm fine. I'm holy, I'm godly, got sin covered, thank you. My prayers have been answered. I love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength, and I love my neighbour as myself. What a load of, don't know, supplying the appropriate word. The Lord may not strike you down for such lying, it might not strike you down dead, but it is deathly for your spiritual life and for any ongoing sense of spiritual reality in your life. In other words, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we're just not honest with him. When you grieve the Holy Spirit, he withdraws. And you're left in this sense of wondering, where did that sense of God's blessing and presence go? Let's sum it up. I need to move on. Last slide. Come to Acts looking for how to pray. Well, we're praying for the church to grow. So here's your little summary for you to learn. Pray for opportunities to witness, eyes to see them, courage to take them, wisdom to know what to say. 
Put that somewhere in your prayer life. And then devotion has to deepen for the church to grow. So pray for devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and, and to prayer. Those little summaries, just they're helpful, aren't they? This is the Christian life. This is Christian growth. And then pray, as it repeatedly says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We pray for a new layer of fear. You have to fear the Lord in the same way if you're... Well, I can't remember what I was standing by the other day. You know, if you were standing by Niagara, you realise, well, if this fence gives way, I'm done for. You know, it's a genuine fear. But you know you've got a, you've got a fence. And, and you should fear the Lord. It's a genuine fear. You could be burnt, burnt up, but you've got Christ. Christ is your railing. It's your salvation, your rescue. Hey, let's pray. <clears throat> and we'll have our time of prayer now. That's why, that's why we delayed it from earlier on. Father God, we, we prayed for growth. I guess we knew this point was coming where if the church is to grow, the onus comes back on us. But initially, at least our Onus is, is to pray, to be devoted to prayer. So we do, Lord, we come before you, we pray for witnessing opportunities, places just to talk about our faith and what you mean to us. We're fearful, we ask you to create them and give us the words to say when they happen. And we pray that you make us devoted. <coughs> devoted to each other. Thank you for the love that is evident in the church. Just pray that now that it deepens, that it overflows um, the little pockets that we get ourselves into. And we pray that we might have fear of the Lord. We ask you, Father God, to come and show us where we're fantasists. We ask you to, in your grace and with all gentleness, show us, show us our subtle sins. And we ask for revival. And that means a breakout of the fear of the Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.